0: I think how I want to start is by reading our passage. We're going to circle back to it a little bit later, but I want to just start by reading it. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, uh, so you'll need to open your Bible to the book of Job, chapter 3, and I think we'll just read uh, these 26 verses, and then we'll pray that God would bless the reading of His Word, and we'll try to make sense of what's in front of us. This is the book of Job, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it, let gloom and deep, darkness claim it let clouds dwell upon it let the blackness of the day terrify it that night let thick darkness seize it let it not rejoice among the days of the year let it not come into the number of the months behold let that night be barren let no joyful cry enter it Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden, a, uh, not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? They're the wicked Cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who's in misery? And life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes." Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the book of Job. There's things in this book that we need to hear and we need to think about and we need to wrestle with. And Lord, we need wisdom as we do that. The things reported to us here are accurate and they're true, but not everything that was said by Job or his friends is true, is right, is good. And so we ask that you would give us discernment to sort through this chapter, Job chapter 3, Lord, we want to be honest about Job and his, his failures and his struggles, and we want to understand how we might be able to face trials and temptations and the attacks of Satan and sing and say with genuine hearts that it is well with our soul. And so we just ask that you would guide us tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already had a head nod to Valentine's Day, and I wished you a happy Valentine's Day. We read about love. I want to do my best to pull, pour cold water on your Valentine's Day at this point. And I want to talk about, as we just read something sad, I want to talk about sad songs. Uh, I recognize there's an entire genre of music devoted sad songs. If you think about the blues and B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Edd James and people like that, uh, the entirety of the genre is sadness. Uh, I don't really care for the blues. I prefer country music, and I happen to think that country music has its fair share of sad songs. And so I'm going to test you tonight a little bit and see if you are uh, up to snuff when it comes to sad country music songs. Let's just start with an old standby. Uncle Willie, what's the saddest song Willie Nelson ever sang? Oh, who said it? Right out of the gate. Blue eyes crying in the rain. Love is like a dying ember. And only memories remain. And through the ages I'll remember blue eyes crying in the rain. What about Johnny Cash? What's the saddest song Johnny Cash ever sang. Hey, y'all are two for two as a group, okay? Johnny Cash did not write the song, Hurt. A man named Trent Reznor wrote it. When Johnny Cash covered it, Trent Reznor was quoted as saying, that song does not belong to me anymore. That's his song. I won't read you all the lyrics, but part of the lyrics say this, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. That's the lyric for a Valentine's card, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, I'm going way back now. Deep cuts, are you ready? Farron Young. What's the saddest song he ever sang? I'll give you a hint. He sang this song to parts of the room that he was sitting in. Hello, walls. (laughs) He sang first to the walls, then to the windows, then to the ceiling. And this is what he said. We must all stick together. Not him and his love, but the walls and the window and the ceiling. We must all stick together or else I'll lose my mind. I've got a feeling she'll be gone a long, long time. How about the Number one saddest country song ever written. Mm, It's a good one? No? That's it. George Jones. I'm going to read you the whole song with no comment, just the lyrics, and you can figure out what's happening here. He said, I love you till you die. She told him, you'll forget in time." As the years went slowly by, she still preyed upon his mind. He kept her picture on his wall, went half crazy now and then, but he still loved her through it all, hoping she'd come back again. He kept some letters by his bed, dated 1962. He had underlined in red every single, I love you. I went to see him just today, but I didn't see no tears. All dressed up to go away. First time I'd seen him smile in years. He stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door, and soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. You know, she came to see him one last time. We all wondered if she would. It kept running through my mind. This time, he's over her for good. He stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door. Soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. Happy Valentine's. (laughs) Job chapter 3, Robert Alden. The third chapter of Job must be one of the most depressing chapters in the Bible. While some might be as depressed as Job was and use these verses to give vent to their feelings, few sermons are made from this chapter. Few verses are claimed as promises. And few are remembered for the warmth of their sentiment. It is the lowest of several low points in the book. That's Alden's commentary on Job chapter 3. We're going to approach this chapter just like we have the last couple of weeks. We're going to think about the characters and the settings. We're going to try to understand the biblical category of lament. We're going to judge whether or not Job is lamenting here or whether or not he's complaining. And then we'll try to think about what we take away from this response, So let's start with the characters in the setting just so we understand who's involved in this part of the story of the book of Job. It's pretty simple. Job is the only character who speaks in Job chapter 3 and Job himself is the focus of Job chapter 3. Job's the only one talking and he's talking about himself and his own life and the struggles that he's experienced. You do need to note we need to remember that Job is speaking in the presence of his friends. They're there, but he's not speaking to his friends. He spoke in the presence of his friends. We'll need to remember that for next week, but he did not speak to his friends. Even more pointedly, let's get square on this. Job acknowledged God in this complaint. But he did not direct his complaint to God. God's mentioned here, but Job is not actually speaking to God. He's not speaking to his friends. He's just speaking, making statements about his circumstance. So let's pause. That's the character. That's the settings. Let's step back. Before we get into this text and try to break it down into three sections, we need to talk about something that in the Bible falls under the heading of lament. We need to understand what a lament is. When you read the book of Psalms, depending on how you count them and classify them and categorize them, some people say as few as 60, as many as close to 80 of the Psalms are psalms of lament. Just think about that for a second. About half of the book of Psalms falls in the genre of lament. There is one book of the Bible, specifically the book of lamentations. Lamentations. The whole thing's a lament. From beginning to end. One giant lament. 66 books in your Bible. God saw fit to put one book that was nothing but a lament. Lament. In the scriptures. We went through the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday nights not that long ago. Remember there's a poem towards the beginning of Ecclesiastes that talks about time and there's a time for this and there's a time for that and there's a time for all these different things in life. And one of the things that the preacher of Ecclesiastes talks about is there is a time in life for sorrow and sadness and crying and lamenting. There's a time for God's people to do that. So what is it? What is a lament? Here's a basic definition. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow directed to God. It's an, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow and it's directed toward God. Okay? Think about this definition. This is not rocket science, but you've got to think this through. It is a passionate expression. Okay? There are times. In the Bible, when you work through the book of Psalms or when you read Lamentations, where you're reading along and they are clearly talking to God and you think to yourself, I don't know if you can say that to God. Are you allowed to say that to God? That doesn't seem entirely appropriate. They say things to God in the book of Psalms and in the book of Lamentations that you, as a good Wednesday night attending Sunday school member, Southern Baptist, you would never say out loud in a Sunday school class. You would blush to say it out loud in front of other people. So it is a passionate expression. It is raw, and often it is very, very unfiltered. It's grief and sorrow that's being communicated. Okay? Never, 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 never does the Bible call Christians to be Stoics. There's been all sorts of movements throughout history, philosophical movements that told people, control your emotions. Uh, The Brits say, you know, have a stiff upper lip, and it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and be in control of yourself, and there's a a revival. I've had people talk to me about this revival. They're interested in Stoicism and the, the ethics that it communicates and the toughness and all the rest, Okay? The Bible is not a Stoic book. You can find philosophers that will tell you to be Stoic and just cold and indifferent, but that's not the Bible. The Bible says God made us to experience emotions. The Bible describes God as experiencing emotions, and as people made in His image, we experience emotions. The most important thing about a lament is that it's directed to God not just talking to other people it's not just talking to the walls or the windows or the ceiling but it's directed to god you may feel like at times you and fair and young are talking to the walls and you may wonder is this just bouncing off the ceiling but the lament in the biblical sense is something that's directed to god okay An old testament scholar named tremper longman I'm not quoting him here exactly, but I'm using his five categories. He says a biblical lament typically okay, typically has five parts. Here's the five parts according to Longman. He says, number one, there's a plea to God for help. Okay, it's directed to God. That's part of a lament. You're talking to God, and you're asking him to help. Something's wrong. Something's hard. Something's difficult. So you're asking for help. Secondly, there is a very raw, honest, often unfiltered complaint, maybe about a situation, maybe about a circumstance, maybe about a person, maybe about some kind of problem, but a complaint is laid out to the Lord. Number three, there may be, not always, but there may be a confession of sin where the person lamenting acknowledges, I'm small, I'm weak, I'm sinful, I've messed up, I've crossed the line. There may be a curse against an enemy. And when I say there's a curse against an enemy, okay, this is a biblical word and it's a good theological word, but it doesn't mean like a hex. It doesn't mean like I'm trying to jinx them and put some kind of spell on them. In the biblical sense, when the psalmists, and it's always David, is praying an imprecation or a curse on somebody else. They're not just saying, I want to get even with them. They're saying, God, I want you to do what is just in this situation. And something is off, something's not square, and I want you to make it square. I want you to act in judgment on your enemies. So maybe there's a curse proclaimed. And then usually, and by usually, in the book of Psalms, okay, about half of them are laments. There's one that doesn't end with this. All the rest of them, towards the end, have some sort of expression of faith and praise. So I hesitate to say there's always an ending with faith in the Lord or praise to the Lord, but usually there is, even if not always. So those are Longman's, Trimper Longman's, five parts of a lament, okay? That's the biblical idea of lament. We talked about this not that long ago. On a Wednesday night, we're talking about how to interpret the Bible. We talked briefly about how to make sense of laments. Now what I want to do is step back, and I want to think about what Job says here. Because, to be fair, I'm reading out of the ESV. Our pew Bibles are ESV. And the heading at the top of Job chapter 3 says what? Job laments his birth. And so I just want to think with you for a minute about whether or not this really is a lament and try to process what's happening here. We'll start with this. After seven days of grief with his friends, Job broke the silence. I think that's important to be clear on. His friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They sit with Job. They weep with Job. They don't say anything to Job for a week They're just there with him to comfort him and to encourage him and Job is the one who breaks the silence Longman says this Job breaks the silence by delivering a powerful and disturbing monologue we read it earlier form of his speech resembles a lament but it differs from the laments of the book of Psalms in some very telling ways In that very same commentary, Longman goes on and he says, What Job says here sounds less like the psalmist lamenting and more like the Israelites in the wilderness complaining. You can be the judge of that. What did he say in this complaint? There's three sections. We'll just recognize the three sections. Uh, Verse 1 to 10, Job cursed the day of his birth. That's the first group of verses. And you notice the translators help you out with the sections. They put a little bit of white space in between verse 10 and verse 11 in most translations to say that's sort of a stanza. Stanza 1, he cursed the day of his birth. Stanza 2, verse 11 to 19, he questioned the reason that he was born. Curses the day of his birth, questions the reason he was born. Stanza 3, 20 to 26, he questioned the meaning of life itself that last stanza is a little bit less about Job and it's just more about suffering in general and what God is up to in these circumstances. Okay, Now we're going to look at this. We're going to read through it sort of again and make some notes and some observations from the text. I just want to throw a few ideas out to you for your consideration before we circle back and, and talk about these sections. Number one, we don't just want to understand Job 3 we we'll to understand the story of the whole book. And so it's really important just to remind ourselves that Job is the one who spoke first. If your understanding of the book and the conversation, the long conversation we're going to talk about next week, if you don't factor in the, uh, the reality that Job spoke first, you can end up being a little too harsh on his friends. Okay? And I'll be honest with you, next week, we're going to be harsh on his friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. We're going to point out, hey, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, you're wrong here. This was bad advice. Y'all are not very kind. But let's just be fair to them and say they showed up not to lecture Job. It's not why they came. If you look back up in chapter 2, it says in verse 11, they came to show sympathy and comfort. That's why they came. And they did that for a whole week. And then Job had something to say. Not to God, not even to them. He just had something to say. And all of the conversation that follows is not the friends were just waiting to pounce on Job. They were there to show sympathy and comfort. But they heard this outburst that we just read in Job chapter 3, and everything they say is in response to that. So we just want to be honest about the circumstances. Number two, when we read through Job chapter 3, there's a difference between what Job says here and what he says back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Those words from Job read a little bit differently. If your Bible's open, look at Job chapter 1 verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look what he says in chapter 2 verse 10. He says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive Evil In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You read the same thing in Job chapter 1. He didn't sin with his lips. Now in chapter 3, he's cursing the day of his birth. He's wondering what God's up to in his life. And he's questioning the very meaning of life. And maybe you noticed that we came to the end of Job chapter 3. And the author did not tell you in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's told you that twice, word for word. Job said this, he didn't sin. Job said this, he didn't sin. Chapter three this is what he said. That's what he said. How do, you, how do you understand that? How do you make sense of that? Can I just give you something to chew on? You can do with this what you want. Just my observation, watching people go through grief, losing a loved one, going through a crisis, something difficult. Sometimes in the immediacy of a grief, God's people have been trained and sort of programmed to say the right thing and to know the right answer. And by God's grace, they throw those truths out there and those truths sustain them in the immediacy of a crisis and they're true and they're good and they're important and all the rest. And can I just tell you what happens after all the casseroles are eaten and all the family goes home and the service is done? And they mess up the headstone, and you have to get it fixed. And you go back to the house, and it's quieter than it was before, and all those things. Sometimes grief hits differently a week, a month, a year down the road than it does in the immediacy of a crisis. You maybe have experienced that, where you said, "Look, in the in the in the throes of a struggle, I felt like I had my feet underneath me, and and I felt pretty good about things, all things considered." And then it got real quiet, or then it was different, or then I had a moment. Out of the blue, driving down the road, something hit me. I saw something. I smelled something. I remembered something, and just grief was triggered just like that. That happens to people, and I think that's part of what's happening to Job here. We'll circle back to that idea in a minute. One more thing, or two more things I want to remind you of. What was the original debate between Satan and God? that happened twice if this happens job will curse you to your face well you know you rigged the game it wasn't fair if you do this job will curse you to your face okay think carefully in job chapter 3 does job curse god to his face it's hard to curse god to your face when you're not talking to god not talking to god And he doesn't curse God to his face. He does curse something. And it's something that falls under the sovereignty of God who knows our days and numbers our days and orders our lives. He does not curse God directly to his face. But he does curse something that God was sovereign over. And again, we'll circle back to that idea and try to sort that out before we finish tonight. Lastly, I just want to take Longman's five points of a lament and think about what you see in Job chapter three. Okay. He says five things uh, typically go into a lament. Number one, there's a plea for help that's directed to God. Does Job do that? No, he's not talking to God in this chapter. Uh, number two, in a lament, there's a complaint. Does Job complain here? I'd say yes, he does, pretty thoroughly. Number three, sometimes there's a confession of sin. Any of that in Job chapter three? I don't think so. Uh, Number four, uh, in thinking about um, what happens in a lament, there's a curse on an enemy or a circumstance or a situation. Is that there? Maybe. There's cursing. It's an interesting thing that he's cursing, the day of his birth. So you can sort that one out, flip a coin, I suppose. Is there an ending expression of faith or praise in this chapter? No, there's not. All right, let's look at the first stanza. Let's just think this through. Job 3, 1 to 10. Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And all the wording that he uses in the verses that follow center on the idea of darkness. That's the theme, okay? He talks about darkness and gloom and deep darkness and clouds and blackness and the night and thick darkness. And essentially what he's saying is, I just want blackness to blot out the day I was conceived. I want that to have never happened. It would have been better if I had never even been conceived. There's all this language about darkness. We'll talk about light here in just a minute, but right now he's talking about darkness. He wants darkness and thick darkness and blackness and deep darkness to just blot that day, that day out. And he talks about a creature named Leviathan. Leviathan. It's a sea Beast. And we're going to talk about Leviathan along with Behemoth when we get to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. And we'll try to sort all that out. There's a, a great land beast and there's a great sea beast described at the end of the book. Job 40 and 41. Behemoth, the land beast, Leviathan, the sea beast. And my understanding of this, not everyone agrees, but I think he's talking about real creatures. Real creatures, a Behemoth and a Leviathan. And I also think that there was an understanding amongst Job and the people who lived in his culture that those beasts represented something dangerous and deadly and destructive. And so you could almost refer to those as sort of a metaphorical idea for death and destruction. And what he's saying here, this is poetry, the format of of this is poetry, kind of like reading Shakespeare or something, they're talking not in everyday prose, but in elevated poetic language. He says, I just want the Leviathan to swallow up the very moment of my conception, and I want it to be destroyed, and I want it to just completely go away. Essentially what he's saying is he wants his birthday never to be celebrated again. Is that what he says in verse 6? Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Brooke and I went to have Valentine's lunch today at Mamacita's. I didn't know that Mamacita's would sing to you. And About halfway through our lunch, the whole staff came out with stuff on, and they were ready to sing, and they started to tune up the band, and then they said, he's gone. He just ran out the front door. And whoever they were there to sing to saw him coming and literally ran out of the restaurant. (laughs) And he was out in the parking lot. And there they were in full garb, ready to sing. And they kind of looked at each other like, well, what do we do now? I guess we go back and wait tables and do the dishes. And let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. You can cue the band up. Job is just running out the front door. I don't want any celebration. There's nothing to celebrate. It's nothing to be happy about. I just wish that it had never happened. I wish it would be swallowed up by darkness. That's stanza one. Stanza two, 11 to 19. Maybe you noticed when we read this section that there's a lot of why questions. Why? 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 Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? So Now we're not talking about conception or the moment of conception. Now we're talking about birth. If I can't blot my conception out, maybe we could just, I could have died a stillborn. Why did I not die at birth? Verse 12, you understand the imagery that he, he uses here, I think. If you know anything about childbirth, why did the knees receive me? Why, why, why did I have to come out of the womb? Why did my mom have to nurse me? Verse 16, why was I not hidden as a stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? He talks a lot in this stanza about rich, powerful kings, and then he also talks about slaves. And he never actually references by name Sheol, or the grave, or the place of the dead, but that's what he's talking about. And he's just thinking and ruminating and wishing in this section, I just wish I could have died as a, an infant died in childbirth and I would have been there with the slaves and the kings and everybody in between and there we would be no one would be suffering like we're suffering now no one would be lording it over anyone else we would just all be equitable essentially in death why 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 look at the last stanza it starts in verse 20 this one's a little more philosophical less concrete about Job and a little more abstract about what God's doing in the world He talks in verse 20 about light. Okay? Lots of talk about darkness. Now he's talking about light. And when he brings light into the conversation, he's talking about life. Right? The contrast. Light and darkness. Life and death. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? If you're a thinking person, you've wrestled with this very question at some point in your life. God, why did you make this person just for them to suffer so greatly? That's not an easy question to answer, is it? It's a hard question to wrestle with. Job's wrestling with it. He's voicing it. Why do you give life to these people? Look what he says in verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden... Whom God has hedged in. I think verse 23 is really important just for understanding what Job is saying here. He says that God has hedged him, certain people, he's hedged them in. Do you remember in chapter 1 what Satan said to the Lord? The Lord said to Satan, Where have you been? What did he say? Oh. Exactly, mumbling, Eh. walking to and fro. None of your business. Here, there, everywhere. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. Fears God, turns away from evil. Righteous, he's upright. He's blameless. And Satan said, you put a hedge around him. You see the difference in perspective? Satan says, he just loves you because you've made his life great. You've blessed him. you put a hedge around him. Two chapters later, very same word. Now it's Job talking. Looking at all the misery in his life. And he's saying, you have hedged me into this prison of suffering. This is all you're doing. It's your fault. You've hedged me in. So those are the three stanzas. It's dark. It's the low point of the book of Job. What in the world do we take away from that? I want you to see five truths. We'll expand on one of them. The rest of them we'll just sort of work through. Truth number one, before we talk about Job, I think we ought to talk about God. When you study the Bible, your first question should never be, what does this teach me about me? But it should always be, what does this teach me about God? Here's one thing this story teaches you about God. He is merciful and he is slow to anger. Okay, We've talked a lot about his sovereignty it's still true. He's still sovereign. We're going to have more to say about his sovereignty as we work through the rest of the book. But don't miss this. He is merciful and he is slow to anger. I wonder if you've ever had the experience in life where somebody comes to you and they say something like, Hey, I need, we need to talk. We need to talk about something. I have something I need to tell you. It's difficult. It's kind of awkward. Um, I don't want you to take this personal What's the next word? Do you take it personal? Of course you do. They're, what they're saying is, I'm, I'm not trying to talk about you. I'm just going to try to talk about this thing that involves you. And I don't, I don't want to make this too awkward. I don't want you to get mad at me. I'm going to say some hard things. I don't want you to take this personal but, and then they lay some heavy thing on you. Okay, Job is not directly cursing God here. But Job understands that good and evil come from God. And he understands that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Is he cursing God to his face? No. Is he cursing the work of almighty sovereign God? Absolutely he is. So it's almost as if Job is speaking out into the air saying, look, don't take this personal. Well, I'm just going to tell you what I think about how you're running things right now. Not about you, it's just about this situation. You can't separate those things. You don't separate those things. They shouldn't be separated here. Look, this stuff about Job, not directly cursing God to his face, but being hypercritical about his decisions, his actions, or his lack thereof. It goes on chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of people justifying themselves and passive-aggressively questioning God, and God listens to all of it. He listens to it. Job doesn't start in, and by verse 4, God says, Okay, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. I've heard enough. That's what you and I would say. Hey, don't take this personal but. You say, No, I've heard enough. God listens to it. He puts up with it. God's merciful. When we say God's merciful, what we're saying is He does not give us what we deserve immediately when we deserve it. He is slow to anger. He's not quick to anger. Okay, I promise you this, for every story in the Bible, every story in the Bible, that non-Christian people like to point to and say, look at God throwing a temper tantrum. If you read before it and understand the context, you understand uh, it's not a temper tantrum. He's actually slow to anger in that situation. Those people knew better. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He tells Moses in Exodus 34 that he is abounding in steadfast love. We've been singing about God's love tonight. How great is the measure of the Father's love? How great is it? How great the Father's love for us. He's not stingy in love. He's not small in the amount of love that he has for his people. He is merciful. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. Derek Thomas says this. Despite Job's anger and frustration, he's never condemned. He's corrected at the end. He's put in his place, but God doesn't cut him off. He doesn't condemn him. God never abandons him. God listens to Job's questions. Job may not have received the answers that he wished for, but he is allowed to ask these terrible, and they are terrible, terrible questions. Number one, a truth about God. Number two, we need to learn how to lament rather than complain. We need to learn how to lament rather than complain. I just want to give you a few reasons. You can look up the numbers reference. I just want to give you a few reasons why we need to learn to lament and not just be people who complain. Reason number one, there's unique temptation that comes with suffering. Unique temptation. Can I give you a parallel truth that's not on the notes? There's unique temptation that comes with prosperity. What's the temptation you might face in times of prosperity? Maybe pride, self-sufficiency, entitlement, ungratefulness. There are unique temptations you will face in times of prosperity. Job faced them. He's a man who prospered greatly. At the end of the book, he's going to prosper again. All of those temptations are going to be coming back around. But it's also true that in suffering, there's unique temptations. What might some of those be? Maybe anxiety, false guilt, envy, anger towards God, anger towards others, despair, despondency, lack of faith, unique temptations. We talked earlier just about the shift that happens in people. We're thinking about Job and we're trying to say, Job... You started off so good. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 and all these things he didn't send with his lips and then the bus seems to have gone off the highway here. What in the world's going on? Look, you understand that in practical experience... Uh, People go through stages of grief in a time of crisis and in a time of loss. And you can, look, get online. You can find this doctor, this expert that says there's this many stages, this expert, this person that says there's this many stages. You pick how many stages you want. It's just people sort of grasping at straws to explain what's happening in people's lives as they process grief. Okay? Here's a few things to remember when you think about these stages of grief. Number one, none of us move through them in a straight singular line, okay? It's not like you say, okay, I'm in stage one, can't wait to get to two, done with one, now I'm at two, let's get through three, and once you get through them, you're just done with it and you check that box and you move on. It's not a straight line through the stages of grief, it's kind of like the flight of a bumblebee, erratic, backwards, forwards, sideways, all over the place. You just need to know that that's what the experience of grief is like. Job's dealing with grief. Think about what Job has lost. He lost all his money, he's now destitute. He lost his kids, he lost his health. He lost all of it. Okay? He's dealing with loss, he's dealing with grief. He's moving through this process. It's not his finest moment in Job chapter 3. But if you've gone through the stages of grief, you've probably had some not your finest moments too. And that's where Job's at. Look, you can just go where the bumblebee takes you through this process. And to some extent, you're at the mercy of the process itself. You can just sort of throw your hands in the air and follow your emotions. Or you can learn how to lament so that you don't just end up complaining all the time. So, secondly, why do we need to learn this? Lament is rare in our culture. Some things certain cultures are good at. Some things certain cultures are bad at. Our culture does not know how to lament. We don't know how to process things. We know how to get angry and outraged about things. Like that singular part, we can do that pretty well, at least for a few minutes. We're really good at taking crises and using them to prove our own points or make our own agendas. We're pretty good at using suffering and crisis to advance what we want to happen or what we think should happen. We're fascinated with suffering. I've talked with you about this before. The most popular genre of podcast is what? true crime. That's what we want to listen to. I listened to some of those. I listened to some not that long ago on a road trip and I found myself listening to it thinking, this is just being in the particular podcast I was listening to, this is just sort of being reported, this horrific thing as a matter of curiosity. These are real people. At times it was being presented as something that was comical. I mean, the subject matter was so heavy, they just kind of had to break the tension and they tried to make jokes and then the jokes were awkward and I thought, I don't, this is, this is odd. How about just technology and the amount of information we get about every horrible thing that happens in the world? Fox News alert, Fox News alert, Fox News alert, landslide, mudside, tornado, hurricane, shooting, abduction, amber alert, war. War crimes, invasion, bombing, terrorist You just get them all day long. We are not capable of processing all that heavy stuff. So what does it do? It just desensitizes us. It's just another update on the screen. We don't know how to do it. There's a quote from Eugene Peterson. I actually used this quote several years ago when we talked about David. In the life of David, when Saul and Jonathan died, David took the moment to teach God's people how to lament. You can go back and read about it. That's what Peterson's talking about here. And he's talking about our culture. He says, there's no lament. He's talking about American culture. There's no lament because truth isn't taken seriously. Love isn't taken seriously. Human life doesn't matter as life. God-given, Christ-redeemed, spirit-blessed life. It counts only as news. There's no dignity to any of it. It's trivialized. So We ought to learn how to lament. Number three, why do we need to learn this? I think it's because lament is often missing in our prayers, or at least it's missing in the way that we teach people to pray. And I'll just give you two examples of this. Uh, when I was growing up, I had multiple Sunday school teachers tell us, you use the word acts to pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's a pretty good model for prayer. Tell God you love him, that he's great. Uh, You confess your sin, you thank God for your blessings, and then you pray for the things that you need. There's no space in there to lament. We don't necessarily always teach that. Some of you maybe grew up with Sunday school telling you, you follow the pray model, P-R-A-Y. You praise, then you repent, then you ask, and then you yield. That's a pretty good model for prayer. It's better than just taking off without any thought to it. But still, there's no built-in place to lament there. So it's often missing from our prayers. This ought to be something that we work at. We try to learn. We read the Psalms. We say, how did they do it? How did they talk to God? What were the pieces of it? I ought to model my prayers on how they prayed. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired this book. He inspired the prayers of this book. Okay? We often think Jesus, the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, you pray like this Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, all the rest of it. It's a good model for prayer. You also have 150 different models for prayer in the book of Psalms. So maybe you ought to think about praying like this. Maybe you ought to pray like this. Learn how to lament. Number three, be cautious about asking God too many questions. Am I telling you not to ask God questions? I'm not telling you that. Am I telling you to use caution? How many of you have had the experience of a toddler asking you the question, why, 500 times in two minutes? And you end it, what's the trump card that you eventually lay down? Because I said so. Why do you say that? Is it because you despise that toddler? No. You say that to a toddler because you understand eventually you get to a point in these why questions where you say, I don't think I can explain that to a toddler. Or maybe you get to the point where you say, you're a toddler and you're not entitled to that answer. You understand the gap between you and a toddler is nothing compared to the gap between creator and creature. He's nothing. Us and the toddlers and the worms and the rocks, we're all down there together. And the creator is transcendent above us. And it's not that God's unwilling to answer every single question. It's just that he's the creator. And it's that the creator understands that the secret things belong to him. And that his thoughts aren't always our thoughts. And his ways aren't always our ways. And his ways are higher than our ways, And sometimes it's that we're not capable of understanding the things that we're asking about. Or sometimes, just like with your toddler, it boils down to God wanting his people to trust him and to walk by faith, not by sight. When we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the preacher said, When you go to the house of the Lord, let your words be few. With much words comes much busyness. Let your words be few. Be quick to listen, the New Testament says, and slow to speak. What's good advice with other people is good advice with God. Be quick, quick to listen, be slow to speak. Barry Webb. Here's the essential lesson for us in this passage. It's all right for a sufferer to wish for the impossible and to ask why. It's dangerous, however, because it brings us close to the fine line between acceptance and rebellion. The more you ask the why question, this is what Job is doing. The closer you get to that line of nitpicking and criticizing, maybe not God directly, but indirectly the things that God is or is not doing in your life. And again, we came to the end of the... The chapter, and there was no verse saying in all these things Job did not sin with his lips. Be careful. Be cautious. Number four, we should remember that Jesus lamented at a funeral and in the garden and on the cross. I'll leave these to you to look up and to trace out. Have you ever thought about the fact that when he went to Lazarus's tomb, he knew that he would have dinner with Lazarus? And rather than telling everyone to put their big boy pants on, he took a moment and he wept. And he felt the weight of loss and hurt and pain and suffering. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he has a question and a complaint to bring to the Lord. If there's any other way for this cup to pass, might it pass? But... Not my will, but your will. Faith and trust. When he's on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22, which you may not be surprised to know is a psalm of lament. And if you read all the way to the end of Psalm 22, it ends with faith and praise. And in quoting the beginning, he wants his people to understand that he's referencing also the end. All these events that surround the cross and the accomplishing of our salvation were were involved in lamenting. One last truth, based on the fourth. We should lament with an eternal perspective. With an eternal perspective. okay, Lamenting with an eternal perspective is still lamenting. When Paul tells the church in Thessalonica that we grieve, but not like those who don't have hope, he doesn't say we have hope so we don't grieve. We still grieve. We just do it as people who have hope, okay? Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He doesn't say we're not suffering. He says we're suffering right now. But in comparison to eternity and the glory that's to be revealed, those two things are not comparable. He says something similar, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, uh, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So... We'll give the final word to David Allen. He says, We should never let our circumstances or our feelings become the measure by which we evaluate God. Our circumstance vacillates, God's character is unchanging. Father, we're thankful. Thankful to know you as our Father. Lord, there are many, many things in our lives that are heavy. There are weights, there's suffering, there's affliction. Lord, there's grief that we carry, and we're grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ is a great high priest who can understand and empathize, relate to our weaknesses and our struggles. We're thankful that Jesus gives us a hope in the midst of our suffering. Father, we certainly do not want to be those who would curse you to your face nor do we want to be those who would curse and criticize and nitpick your plans and your ways and your secret providences. We want to be people who trust you. We want to be people who lament rather than complain. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would be at work in us to remind us of these truths, to give us a gospel-centered perspective, to give us an eternal perspective on the light momentary afflictions that we face uh, in this world. Lord, be honored in our singing as we are dismissed. Uh, We do it for your glory, and we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.